those of you who have been following uh, the readings on Sunday in the liturgical churches, this past Sunday, we had the featured lesson, which was Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. And that one talks about uh, people who are guilty of greed, basically saying that people who are guilty of greed are also prone to self-deception. Today's featured lesson from the same chapter in the same gospel is the flip side of the coin, and it teaches us that a person who cultivates spiritual vigilance are wise stewards of their possessions. And I think that in these two readings, back to back, in these two readings we have two sides of the same coin. Those who are fixated on what they have tend to be inattentive to who they are. And in contrast, Jesus is trying to point out, I think, that those who concern themselves with who they are before God tend to be generous and responsible with what they have. Today's reading from Luke's Gospel is divided into three parts, three very distinct parts. This first part is Jesus encouraging us not to fear the future because, as he says, it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And then Jesus gives us some suggestions of how to deal with our belongings in preparation for the coming kingdom. The second block is the parable of the watchful steward. Stewards who await their masters and are dressed for action and have their lamps lit. And when the master returns, the master is pleased, seats them at the table, and serves them. The third block is another parable, this one about a single servant. This time the servant must decide whether to continue to do his work faithfully in expectation of the master's return, even though the return is uncertain. Notice that all three parts of the text we are given today are about vigilance in what we do with the goods the master has entrusted to us. I'll be very frank with you, this sounds like Advent. And I thought to myself, you know, why are they giving us Advent lessons? You know, the first Sunday of Advent is always looking towards the second coming, getting prepared, looking out, watch out, keep your eyes open. And I thought, why are they giving us an Advent theme in, in the hot days of, of summer in August? And then I realized, well, you know, we don't have any choice about it. The church gives us this reading. We have to use them on Sunday morning. It's what we have, and that's what we have to deal with today. So let me suggest to you that our story is about spiritual vigilance, waiting for God's return. And it offers us, I think, three distinct ways of understanding the doctrine of, the Christian doctrine of last things. And I want to call these three stances that Jesus suggests for us today for the vigilant person. I want you to offer them for your consideration this way. Watching for, watching over, and watching out. The first one is watching for. The two parables at the end of our story today point us to watching for the return of the master, and we understand ourselves to be the responsible management of property for which one day we will have to render an account. And here vigilance is a tireless, tireless constancy and obedience. Waiting for the master. We say it every Sunday. Every Sunday during the Eucharist, we repeat it. It says, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We say it every Sunday. Now, I have a hard time with the part about Christ will come again because it always points to something in the future, 
something that we're waiting. And what it has risen, what it's given risen to in the, uh, in the life of the church is sort of a theology of fear. A theology of fear, what's going to happen to you at the very end? Worry about the very end, about what's going to happen to you. And I want to tell you, theologies of fear don't work very well. Fear is a diminishing emotion, as you and I both know. And theology of fear, politics of fear, anything that has to do with fear is a diminishing emotion. So I think to myself, what are we trying to do here today? What is Jesus saying that may be a healthy option for ourselves? Barbara Brown Taylor wrote an article in the Christian Century some time ago that I always liked. And she said that while she was in seminary, one of her professors told her that this idea about Jesus coming the second time, the second, the parousia, the second coming, is that, you know, the church fathers came up with that thing, I think, to keep people straight in, in an order. And he says that maybe they didn't get it all quite right because he said that God has placed no limit on how many times God comes to the world. And the only thing we are required to do is to notice, to watch, to keep our eyes peeled because God keeps coming over and over and over and over into the world. It's not just one time, but Christ will come again. And every Sunday when we say those words, I tell myself, ah, Christ comes today, just like Christ came yesterday, and just as Christ promises to be with us tomorrow. And what it makes me think is this. Why not be ready all the time? Not only for the end, but for whatever the moment brings. Every morning, when we wake up, maybe we should decide to live the life that God has given you to live right now. Perhaps when we wake up in the morning, we should refuse to live yesterday over and over again. Perhaps we are called to resist the temptation to save our best self for tomorrow. Perhaps we shouldn't be putting off the living the kind of life we are meant to live. There is no time for that, no matter how much time we have left in our lives. And I would suggest to you that perhaps Jesus is saying to us, go ahead, make the decision for your life. Write the letter. Get the help you need. Find someone to love. Give yourself away. Why make waste your time making preparations for the end of time that you cannot predict. Maybe Jesus is suggesting to us, live prepared, live a caught-up life, not a put-off life, so that wherever you are, you are ready for God, whenever God comes, in the very daily activities of our lives. Watching for. Watching over. The second element of waiting for Christ's return is is replaced by a powerful sense of responsibility for the care of those for whom God cares. Vigilance over those who cannot protect themselves or provide for themselves is our second stance. The intrinsic dignity and worth of every person is underscored, and the moment of significance is in the way we react to them when the cries of those who are crying for mercy reach our ears. I think Jesus is suggesting us that the unfailing treasure in heaven is somehow, in some way, participated by the giving of alms, which I think can be understood in the broadest sense of the word. When Jesus suggests giving up alms, I think he's talking about money too. 
I'll only mention this because we've talked about this over and over in this congregation and you know it by heart. Money is a very powerful instrument and I want to tell you I am convinced with all every fiber in my being that if you don't give some of your money away, that powerful instrument has power over you. And the only way to have power over that powerful instrument, to prove it to yourself, is to give some of it away to somebody, to some institution, to some ministry, somebody who's doing God's work in this world. And that's the way that we know that we have power over that powerful instrument. But as I said, alms, I think, can be understood in the broadest sense of the word. It's reacting to people in need in whatever form you find them, in whatever form and in whatever situation you encounter them in your life. I was reading an article the other day about the lady who was coming out of the uh, Democratic Convention over in Philadelphia, and she was riding from uh, wherever the convention takes place in Philadelphia to catch a flight out of the Philadelphia airport, and so she got one of the Uber cars, but because it was uh, such a crowded time in Philadelphia, it took him forever to get to the airport, so she struck a, a conversation with the Uber driver. And so they talked about what was she doing there, what did he do, uh, you know, the usual conversation you carry on with a driver that's taking you somewhere, and they got going, and finally they, they f- finished that conversation, and they started talking about the upcoming Olympics. And while she's coming, talking about the upcoming Olympics, she said, you know, I wish I could be there. I'd love to be there for the Olympics, but I just can't do it. And the man who's driving the Uber car says to her, oh, I wish I could be there too. My son is one of the athletes, but I can't afford it. So she did what Jesus would suggest. Quickly, through the internet, set up a fund, a fund to be able to raise money so that this man could go from Philadelphia down to uh, Rio de Janeiro to watch his son compete in the Olympics. Now, you know, it doesn't change the course of the world, does it? It doesn't change all of the problems that we have. But she reacted to the situation, and she did something for someone who was crying in need, who was crying, in a sense, for some mercy. Alms needs to be understood in the broadest sense of the word. While we were on vacation, on the beginning of July, I had the opportunity to read a book that is a book about ACC basketball. I'm not going to bore you with ACC basketball today, but it's a topic close to my heart. And it's a book about the three main, co- the three coaches of the ACC basketball about whom we know. One of them, Dean Smith. The other one, Coach K at Duke. Dean Smith from North Carolina. Coach K at Duke and uh, Jim Valvano from NC State from some years ago. And so the story goes about how they at first can't stand each other, but then through the years they gain a grudging admiration for each other. And that's the theme of the book. But there was one story told by John Feinstein that captured me. I've heard it before. Perhaps you've heard it before. But it's about uh, Dean Smith, who's my favorite coach. At the end of the book, I still don't like Coach K, by the way, at Duke University. But that's for another, that's for another Sunday. At any rate, so they were, uh, this was in the days when the segregation was a segregation, the rule of law in the South. And Dean Smith takes one of the African-American players to the restaurant where everybody gathered to have dinner. And while they were there, everybody didn't know what to do. Finally, the owner allowed Dean Smith, because he was the coach, to stay there and to stay there with the African-American athlete. This was back when integration, if you've ever lived in the South, if you've ever lived in the South during those days as I did, let me tell you, this was serious business. You did not cross that line. You didn't challenge the powers to be. So when John Feinstein is interviewing Dean Smith at the end of his life, 
he repeats that story, and Dean Smith responds to me, responds to him, who told you that story? He said, I told him that it was Reverend Seymour, the Baptist preacher of his church. Smith shook his head and he says to him, I wish he hadn't done that. John Feinstein says he was surprised and he says, Dean, you should be proud of doing something like that. And he says that Dean Smith looked him in the eye and said, John, you should never be proud of doing the right thing. You should just do the right thing. I think it's important to understand alms in the broadest sense of the word. It's doing the right thing at the right time for the right occasion. However it is that it presents itself. And it is about watching over those who are crying for mercy. The third form of spiritual vigilance suggested in our reading today is watching out. And it is guardianship. It is inwardly focused. It is the guardianship of our souls. In a sense, it's about the chief duty that you and I have to watch out for the ways that our carnal proclivities can alienate us from God. Faith has to be specific, has to have specific content. That's the task of theology. But I have to tell you that I think that imagination has to have an important part in our faith system. And I think imagination needs a language of poetry and it needs a language of music. As I've told you this congregation many times, I suggest to you, read poetry. Always, always read poetry. The philosopher Jack Maritain wrote that poetry is the divination of the spiritual, and I believe him. And so whenever I am in deep trouble, whenever my heart is aching, Whenever I don't know who I am anymore, I want to tell you that I turn to poetry, secular poetry, and to biblical poetry. And not too long ago in July, during those dark days that we had in July, when the people, when a man in Minnesota gets shot, when people in Dallas get shot, when people in Baton Rouge get shot, when people in Orlando get shot, and I'm saying to myself, we're killing each other. ISIS doesn't have to worry about us. We're doing their job for them. It is one of the worst weeks we've ever had, I think. The way we were killing each other all over this land. And it was breaking my heart, just like it was breaking your heart. And my spirit was downsized. I read a poet, the poet in Isaiah, chapter 55. And the poet in the poetry is saying that, Don't let your thoughts be mired in the mud of human despair. Let your imagination rise to merge with the imagination of God. And this is how the poet writes it. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And when I read it, I thought to myself, have I ever heard a mountain singing? No. How I ever heard a whole forest of trees clapping their hands? No. But the poet did. The poet heard them. And then I remembered our vacation. We traveled to Virgin Gorda, part of the British Virgin Islands. We've been going for 18 years down there, and I want to tell you, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. 
I have to tell you that I think God was in a very good mood when that part of the world got invented or got created. It is just drop dead gorgeous. And whenever after we finish snorkeling, we come back to the beach and my wife goes to gather shells on the side of the beach. Our daughters go to suntan and read books over by the side of the beach. I don't. I get into the water, put a t-shirt on so that my shoulders won't burn. I put my tennis hat on so that my head won't burn. And I do, I become an all-star in the, uh, in, the, in the athletic world. I call it bobbing in the ocean. And basically, I just sit in the ocean and bob and bob and bob. And I just watch everything around me. I watch the ocean, the waves. I watch the trees. I watch the sailboat. I watch everything while I am bobbing and bobbing and bobbing. And then I remembered that there are some days when I can hear the ocean laughing. It's about the inner self. It's about meditation, however you choose to do it. It's about letting our imagination rise to meet the imagination of God, giving us a perspective about the kingdom of God about which we can never imagine, but it is God's kingdom. That's our Advent lesson for today. About watching for, it's about watching over. And it's about watching and preparing ourselves to experience the presence of God in the imagination of our hearts. Amen. Amen.